0: Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire.
1: Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. At the time, all I remember that my little brother come up missing. We haven't seen him, this and that. And last time I talked to him, I stopped. He was cutting some hedges on the tree for for someone, you know? And I stopped and I asked him, I said, you all right? You need anything? You need any money, anything? He told me, no, he said, man. He said, I'm all right. I said, well, if you need anything, maybe you just come by my house, man and that was the last time I talked to my little brother when I told him that you know it ain't that easy to just say well oh I'm just gonna throw all this on the back burner you know my little brother gone it's, it's not that easy especially when it's someone that you you know play with you know you just he's missing if he was here now Man, you just don't know, man. I'm I'm I miss my little brother. I wish he was here. I really do.
0: The knowledge that a serial killer is operating in our community, walking and driving the streets, perhaps sitting next to us at a bar, or delivering our pizza, is enough to send a chill down the spine of even the most fearless amongst us. When media headlines scream that a serial offender has been apprehended, especially after many years, we feel safe, relieved. We exhale as we feel we no longer have to worry about our safety or that of our loved ones in the same way. We no longer have to look over our shoulder for someone suspicious or alter our daily routines on the advice of law enforcement. And we no longer need to worry about not hearing from a friend colleague, or relative for days or weeks, as we once did when a killer was on the loose. Everything just goes back to normal. That is, unless, despite the high-profile arrest of a serial offender, whose crimes were well-known before they were apprehended, the murders in our community continue. This was the reality for the residents of southern Louisiana from the early 1990s to the mid-2000s. During this period, at least three serial killers were active throughout the state, stretching the resources of both parish police departments and Louisiana State Police to their limits. Two of these perpetrators both operated in the East Baton Rouge and Lafayette parishes, and the story of their heinous crimes made breaking news across the state. A string of women, both white and black, from various backgrounds, were being raped and murdered and were often attacked in or abducted from their own homes. Understandably, people were terrified and took all the usual precautions. But strangely enough, the other killer who was active during the same time managed to dodge any real scrutiny up until the time he was arrested. In fact, as you'll see, some people close to the case still argue to this day that some aspects of law enforcement, the media, in the wider parish communities that were affected either ignored or were apathetic when it came to the rising toll of victims at the hand of this third killer. Listener, you may well wonder why this would be. Although we'd all like to think that victims of crime and their families are given an equal amount of public sympathy and media airtime, most of us are not so naive as to believe this is the reality of true crime investigation and media reporting today. Statistics worldwide reflect that victims who are living on or below the poverty line are a person of color, are drug-dependent, have a criminal history, or identify as LGBTQI, and who engage in jobs like sex work, simply do not elicit the amount of community outrage as those who are white, heterosexual, successful, and attractive. In the study of victimology and the social construction of victims... This is known as the concept of legitimate victimization. The term was coined by academic researchers in the early 1970s and is also referred to as the concept of deserving versus undeserving victims. As you'll hear, part of the difficulty and length of time it took to apprehend the offender in today's story relates directly to this concept. The offender you'll hear about was able to fly under the radar, so to speak, for so long because no one... Apart from the victim's loved ones, and a handful of dedicated investigators, seemed to notice or care that they were gone. This third serial offender operated across six parishes in southern Louisiana and suburban New Orleans. He didn't target women, those who were wealthy and successful, or anyone whose disappearance elicited statewide outrage or galvanized response from law enforcement from the outset. But his victims, the ones in today's story, were just as vulnerable, just as missed, and just as worthy of public mourning and justice as anyone else who has ever fallen victim to a sadistic predator. Their killer just didn't see it that way. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. The Pelican State The southern state of Louisiana has the dubious honor of consistently having a notoriously high murder rate, and is reported to be the only state where the annual average murder rate is at least twice as high as the annual average in the U.S. In contrast to other jurisdictions across America, Louisiana is the only one where administrative and political subdivisions are geographically referred to as parishes instead of counties, as they're known across the rest of the country. The subtropical climate is characterized by frequent rainfall, long, hot, humid summers, and short, mild winters. Intense summer thunderstorms during the steamy summer days bring some relief from the thick humidity that hangs heavy in the air as a result of temperatures which average 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Of the 64 parishes across Louisiana, several will feature in our story today. Jefferson Parish in the southeast of the state Named in honor of Thomas Jefferson and his role in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, is home to 433,000 people, 56% of the parish is water, and is divided into the East and West Bank areas by the Mississippi River. Directly west of Jefferson Parish, with a population of 53,000, lies St. Charles Parish, one of the state's original 19 parishes established following the Louisiana Purchase. Southwest of St. Charles Parish and covering 1,500 square miles is LaFouche Parish. The Lafouche Parish seat of Thibodeau with a population of 15,000 residents is an hour's drive from New Orleans. Thibodeau is a town with a high crime rate where many households live below the poverty line, but nevertheless there is a strong sense of community among residents. Traveling southwest of the Lafouche Parish again, brings us to the coastal parish of Terrebonne. The area is home to 120,000 people and is surrounded by five separate bayou communities. Bayous are slow-moving creeks or sometimes swampy sections of rivers or lakes and are a common part of the topography of the southern state localized to the Gulf region. The Lafourche Parish Seat of Houma, which is a 20-minute drive from Thibodeau, has a network of bayou and is surrounded by 2,500 square miles of wetlands, swamps, and sugarcane fields, with many of its residents working in commercial fishing and seafood trawling or on offshore oil rigs. The main road heading into Huma is Highway 182, also known as New Orleans Boulevard, where a cluster of nearby motels attracts sex workers, drug dealing, and people living on the fringe. Part 2 Lone Star Ronald Dominique was born on January 9, 1964, in the Lafouche parish town of Thibodeau and was one of six children. Ronald spent his childhood growing up in nearby Huma and enjoyed spending time with his mother and female relatives. Ronald didn't have a close relationship with his father and shied away from spending time with his male relatives, who he felt bullied him. Not much else is known about Ronald's early years, but he had a difficult time fitting in at school. Being short, overweight, and with a socially awkward and effeminate manner, Ronald was considered by his peers to be both a loner and a target of bullies, which caused him to end up skipping school to avoid the bullying the childhood double whammy of self-esteem issues, if you will. In addition to spending time with the female members of his family, Ronald loved performing and found solace as a member of the chorus in his high school glee club. In 1978, Ronald started attending Thibodeau High School, where during his high school years, many of his peers and acquaintances assumed he was gay. While they recalled him being bullied relentlessly about his sexuality, he never publicly came out. Despite Ronald's struggle at school, he was generally known by his family and those around him as a kind person who liked to offer a helping hand. But one day, when Ronald was a teenager, something happened that was said to have significantly changed his outlook on his family relationships. In the book, The Bayou Killer, author Jack Smith recounts that one day, while climbing up to retrieve a ball off the roof of his house... Ronald happened to glance through a bedroom window where he saw his mother and uncle having sex. It's not known whether Ronald later raised this with his mother, but at the very least, this must have been a traumatic and confusing shock for any young person. Ronald graduated high school in 1983. He soon moved out of the family home into a trailer in the backyard, but then moved in with his sister into her trailer Ronald struggled financially after leaving school and bounced around accommodation, living with various relatives. He enrolled in a computer studies course at Thibodeau Votech and at one stage also worked as a convenience store manager. By the time Ronald was in his early 20s, he had come out as identifying as gay. During 1985, he shared an apartment in Thibodeau with a man he'd met through his friends. This presented a good opportunity for Ronald to expand his social circle but his roommate didn't recall him being very social or outgoing. Despite his shyness, Ronald had started frequenting gay bars in Huma around that time, but even then, he failed to make meaningful social connections with the local gay community. Around the time Ronald was getting involved in the Huma gay scene, he won a moped in a McDonald's competition. Given he didn't have any other means of transportation like many others in poor rural communities, He took to getting around town on the scooter, which soon earned him the nickname Miss Moped. On June 12, 1985, 21-year-old Ronald was arrested and charged with telephone harassment. He pleaded guilty and paid a $74 fine plus court costs. Things took a further turn for the worse for Ronald health-wise. When in his 20s, he started experiencing chest pains and breathing problems. This resulted in Ronald being diagnosed with a heart condition that often required additional care, and his sister stepped in to help care for him when his brother's health was poor. It appeared that the context in which people knew Ronald dictated how he was perceived by those around him. There was the Ronald who was helpful to his neighbors in the trailer parks where he lived. With regard to his closeted sexuality, there was also the Ronald who cross-dressed and did bad impersonations of Patty LaBelle. At one of the two local gay clubs in Huma. At five feet seven and overweight, Ronald didn't fit in with the desired physique of the men who frequented gay bars in the area. And it didn't help that he still carried with him an odd manner and social awkwardness that people found difficult to warm to. Unfortunately for Ronald, this meant that neither his trailer park neighbors nor the local gay community appeared to accept him. Through most of his adulthood, Ronald struggled financially. He moved between his mother's house and a trailer on his sister's property. When he lived on his own, Ronald was said to even keep Christmas decorations up year-round in his trailer. In 1993, 29-year-old Ronald moved into his own trailer on Josephine Street in Thibodeau. He found work as a truck driver for a vending company traveling across Louisiana and was remembered by his neighbors as someone who was quiet and kept to himself. It was also in 1993 that Ronald had his first serious run in with law enforcement. A man had reported to the police that he met Ronald while hitchhiking along the side of the road in East Tuma. Ronald had offered the man a ride and they chatted until the man reached his destination. Before they parted, Ronald and the man arranged to meet in the same place a few days later. And Ronald would bring along some weed to sell the man. When they met at the agreed spot, Ronald drove the man to his trailer, by now parked on Locust Street, in Thibodeau, to get the drugs. This was unusual, and the man wondered why Ronald didn't just bring the weed with him in the first place. Once inside Ronald's trailer, Ronald insisted that the man be shut in the bathroom, as Ronald didn't want him to see where he kept his stash of weed. The man did as he was instructed, but when he came out, he was confronted with a barrel of a gun stuck in his face. Ronald then proceeded to handcuff, strip, and rape the man. According to an interview with The Courier newspaper, following the assault, Ronald allegedly told the man to get dressed and leave. As the man ran through the neighborhood, he reported that someone fired a shot at him. With police arriving soon after, the man told police what happened and his claim initially appeared to be supported by the ligature marks on his wrist. However, when the man was taken to the hospital doctors claimed they couldn't find any conclusive evidence the man had been raped. Local law enforcement drew the conclusion that there was no evidence to support the man's claims, and there was no further investigation into his complaint. This incident had proved a narrow escape for Ronald, but the following year, on May 15, 1994, he was arrested and charged with driving while intoxicated and speeding. That same year... Ronald moved to Huma, where he started frequenting the only gay bar in an attempt to get to know people, but was unsuccessful in establishing new social connections, and often found himself rebuffed. On the night of August 25, 1996, residents of Bryan Street in Huma heard smashing glass and screams shattering the peace and quiet. According to the Courier, when neighbors looked out their windows, they saw a man aged in his twenties, wearing jeans but no shirt running up the road repeatedly screaming, He's trying to kill me, before collapsing in a terrified heap in a neighbor's yard. The man had an extension cord tied around his arm. The man told police that he had met Ronald a few days earlier while walking along the side of the road. Ronald had given the man a ride, and during the exchange, they agreed to meet up later so the man could buy some drugs from Ronald. When they next met on the agreed day, Ronald drove the man to his trailer, and they both went inside. But things soon turned ugly. Ronald stuck a gun in the man's face, bound his hands and legs with a wire, and viciously raped him while holding a Bowie knife to his throat, before kicking him out of the trailer. The smashing glass that night was a result of the man breaking through a trailer window to escape. As it happened, the police officer who took this report was the same officer who took the report in 1993. From the man who had made a similar complaint, these similarities didn't go unnoticed, and police interviewed Ronald about the consistency in both survivors' account. When questioned by police, Ronald openly told them that he had picked up both men and taken them home. He explained that they had agreed to sex, but that in order to alleviate Ronald's nerves prior to the encounters, both men offered to be tied up to make Ronald feel more at ease Ronald then told police that, following sex, both men demanded money and, becoming frightened, he threatened them with his gun so they would leave. The police didn't buy it. Neither of the survivors knew each other, and 32-year-old Ronald was charged with aggravated rape, booked on $100,000 bond, and held at Lafouche Parish Detention Center. During his three months in jail while awaiting trial, Ronald was said to have been severely and repeatedly beaten and raped so badly that he had to receive medical attention for a torn rectum. However, when the case was eventually brought to court, the survivor could not be found to testify. So on November 7, 1996, the charges were dropped. Ronald had no doubt had a traumatic experience in jail, but he was free to go. However, The survivor later told The Courier newspaper that he didn't receive any notification at any stage to attend court. Given the man had a fixed address and a stable job, he couldn't understand how police or court officials had failed to track him down and was angry that he was denied his opportunity to testify. Ronald, meanwhile, swore he would never return to jail, no matter what, and he now had new boundaries in terms of sexual encounters. Ronald was still desperate for acceptance within the gay community, but the trauma of being raped in prison put him off being penetrated for life. He thereafter decided he wouldn't engage in anal sex unless he was the dominant partner in the encounter, known in the gay community as the top. This would ensure Ronald would have full control during the act, and control was what he felt he needed at all costs. Part 3 Out in the Open 19-year-old David Mitchell Jr., also known by those close to him as Tweety, worked at St. Charles Parish Hospital. After graduating from Honville High School as an honor roll student and where he also worked as a reporter on the school newspaper, David hoped that his experience at the hospital would set him on the path to one day become a mortician or coroner. David had a strong work ethic and was very close to his family. He lived with his sister in Luling, in St. Charles Parish, but would always let his mother know where he was going to be if he was staying out overnight with a friend, as he knew she was worried. On July 13, 1997, David attended a birthday party with his mother, aunt, and grandmother in Houma, where he'd been visiting for a couple days. Immediately following the party, David's aunt dropped him off at his grandmother's house in Kelowna, about a 45-minute drive from Houma. David wanted to get back to Luling before the weekend finished, so he told his mother he'd arranged to catch a ride back home with his uncle. Having only just graduated from high school, David didn't have a car, and if a family member or friend wasn't able to give him a ride, he often got around by hitchhiking. Unbeknownst to David, his uncle had been delayed in coming to pick him up as arranged. So, instead of waiting, David decided to hitchhike home to Luling. The next day, David's mother received a call from his supervisor at the hospital. David never missed a day of work, but he had failed to show up and hadn't contacted the hospital either. David's mother was immediately concerned, as this was extremely out of character for her conscientious son. She contacted David's sister, who checked her brother's room and found his work uniform and ID badge. Untouched. In the process of trying to track David down by contacting family members, a new story caught David's sister's attention on the TV that had been running in the background. The image of a body of an African-American male flashed across the screen. In a matter of seconds, David's family went from being confused and slightly worried to hysterical. It was David's lifeless body there for all to see. David had been found face down in a shallow canal, Located on River Road in Honville, which led to a water treatment plant in an industrial area. He was fully clothed, but he was missing his shoes and had his pants pulled down around his ankles. At David's autopsy, the cause of death was determined to be asphyxia and drowning, but this didn't make any sense to his shattered family. There were no drugs in David's system, so it would have been impossible for him to drown unless he was unconscious and the presence of a faint ligature mark around David's neck had been noted. The police didn't believe David had fallen victim to foul play, but the lack of water in his lungs contradicted the theory that he'd fallen and drowned in the shallow water. For David's heartbroken family, there were no clear-cut answers and what the police felt was simply a tragic accident. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, Let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline. Riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets, I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now. Let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing. To see incredible changes in their dog's health, listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com/obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again. That's dot com slash Obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then, she can either type her response or record her voice. And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is... It's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. 20-year-old Gary Pierre was known around the area of Boute and St. Charles Parish. Not much is known about Gary, but he didn't have a fixed address and was known to frequently hitchhike to get around. Gary also had a history of drug use and, in early 1997, was reported to have been arrested on drug-dealing charges. On December 14, 1997, a motorist driving through a wooded area of Mons in St. Charles Parish found the body of a young adult African-American male. It was Gary, who had been bound, raped, and strangled. By 1998, 34-year-old Ronald Dominique was moving between working low-paid delivery and construction jobs, finally securing a position with St. Charles Parish Maintenance Department. While Ronald had never had much money, he had saved enough to move into a new trailer, in Boutte, a 30-minute drive west of New Orleans in St. Charles Parish and close by the airport. Ronald continued to hang out at gay bars in the surrounding areas after work, including the French Quarter of New Orleans, where he became a skilled pool player. 38-year-old Larry Ranson was last seen on July 30, 1998. The following day, his fully clothed but lifeless body was found in St. Charles Parish, a mere 100 feet from the site where the body of David Mitchell had been discovered, only a year earlier. Not much more is known about Larry, but his autopsy revealed that before he died, he had been savagely beaten and strangled. 27-year-old Oliver LeBanks had his shares of ups and downs. Known as Ollie to his friends and family, he had a steady job working in food preparation at the renowned Old Dog New Trick Cafe in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Oliver took pride in his work and loved his job. He had a close relationship with his boss, who was proud of the progress Oliver had made to overcome his previous struggles with drug dependency and seemed to be on the path that made him happy. Oliver lived with his girlfriend in a housing project bordering the French Quarter, and after work, he often hung around in the popular tourist area to wind down and socialize. But Oliver's highest priority outside work was being a devoted father to his five children who didn't live with him but whom he saw as often as possible. Unfortunately, by mid-1998, Oliver had fallen in with a bad crowd and as a result had begun using drugs again and was struggling to meet his work obligations. His boss found herself in the heartbreaking position of having to fire Oliver but told him that he was always welcome back when he got clean unemployed out of money with no qualifications oliver was desperate so he turned to something he'd tried in the past when he was in immediate need of cash oliver had been known over the years to occasionally engage in sex work to make ends meet when he lost his job at the cafe his brother tried to discourage him from sex work but oliver needed the money on the evening of october 3rd 1998 Oliver caught up with his brother before heading out to meet friends at a New Orleans gay bar called Rawhide. On October 5th, road construction workers arriving at work at Stable Drive in the Jefferson Parish town of Metairie found the body of an African-American man laying face down near a gravel road under an overpass. Police arrived and identified the body of that of Oliver LeBanks. Oliver had been bludgeoned on one side of his head, repeatedly, with a tire iron. Bruising to his neck indicated that he had been tied and choked by something resembling a belt. There were also signs his wrists had been bound together. His pants were below his knees, and he was missing a shirt and shoes. But police managed to recover hair from the scene that would later be identified as chest hair belonging to a Caucasian man. Police tracked down patrons who had been at the Rawhide Bar on the nights leading up to Oliver's disappearance but no one had seen anything. Sixteen-year-old Joseph Brown was a freshman at Honville High School. He grew up at St. Charles Parish and knew Gary Pierre, whose body had been discovered back in December 1997. Despite having gotten involved in drug dealing in the past, Joseph had managed to pull himself away from the scene, and his family was proud of his efforts. They were still understandably concerned, however, Joseph's family knew he'd do nearly anything for money, and even though he didn't identify as being gay, the appeal of a quick buck at his young age made him vulnerable to older men who wanted to pay for sex. Joseph was last seen alive on October 19, 1998, in the Boutte area around midnight. The following day, his body was discovered close to the Kenner Police Department complex in Jefferson Parish. Like Oliver LeBanks, who had been found two weeks prior, Joseph had his pants pulled down and was missing his shirt and shoes. It was clear that Joseph had met a brutal end. He had been bludgeoned on the back of his head and suffocated, and police also found a bloody plastic bag near his body. Like several victims before him, not much information is available about Bruce Williams. Eighteen-year-old Bruce was well-known around the French Quarter and was last seen in New Orleans. In the early hours of November 27, 1998, his body was found later that day in Jefferson Parish, alongside a highway outside New Orleans. He was fully clothed and had been choked and sexually assaulted. Four bodies had now turned up in the space of five months, and police decided it was time to reach out to the FBI. Author Fred Rosen explains in his book, The Bayou Strangler, how based on the sites where the bodies had been found so far, Profilers surmised that the killer lived near the airport, local whom a newspaper reporter, Robert Morris, started to query a connection between the deaths. Even accounting for misadventure and overdoses amongst a community where many lived in poverty and were dependent on illicit drugs, surely all these incidents couldn't have been accidental, and even if they weren't, they couldn't all be the work of different people. Local law enforcement didn't appear to be making any headway in apprehending the person responsible, and perhaps exposure in a nationwide publication might prompt some answers in action. Robert contacted the New York Times newspaper about the number of bodies of healthy and fit young men turning up on the side of the roads in southern Louisiana, but the Times wasn't especially interested. In their eyes, it was a regional and not national issue of interest. Like Oliver LeBanks, 21-year-old Manuel Reed lived close to the French Quarter of New Orleans and was a familiar face around the area. On May 30, 1999, Manuel's body had been found in a commercial dumpster in Bainbridge Street in Kenner, Jefferson Parish. Manuel had sustained significant bruising and was missing his shirt. Police noticed that his belt was on the opposite way, an indication that he may have been redressed by the killer after death before being dumped elsewhere. Importantly, the crime scene where Manuel was found was the first to provide police with a breakthrough. Semen and hair samples were recovered from the scene, but hopes of identifying the offender were short-lived when the DNA profile failed to match any held on existing law enforcement databases. Angel Mejia was also 21 years old. Originally from Boutte in St. Charles Parish, he didn't have a fixed address, but tended to find a place to stay wherever he could. According to the Daily Review newspaper, Angel knew both Gary Pierre and Joseph Brown. His bodies had previously been found in 1997 and 1998, respectively. The paper reported that at one stage, Angel lived a block away from Gary, the pair being arrested on drug dealing charges in early 1997. Angel was last seen in Kenner in Jefferson Parish on June 30, 1999. Walking with friends at 3 a.m., most likely following a night out. Later that day, his body was found next to a dumpster in Delaware Avenue, only a mile from where he was last seen alive. Like the previous victims, Angel had been strangled and was missing his shoes. DNA from a semen sample was recovered from the scene. At this stage, police had not spoken publicly about any connection between the eight murders that had occurred in the space of less than two years because they were yet to make that link themselves. The fact that the bodies of young men were turning up across various parishes didn't help matters, given the clear need for a coordinated multi-jurisdictional approach to finding who was responsible. 34-year-old Mitchell Johnson was dedicated to his family, On August 27, 1999, he was walking his two young nieces to a convenience store in Kenner. His nieces later told police that a white man approached their uncle, and the two men talked. Mitchell walked his nieces back to their mother's house. That was the last time anyone saw him alive. Mitchell's body was found not long after by road workers next to a gravel road under an overpass. This was in Metairie in Jefferson Parish. There were restraint marks on his wrists and signs of strangulation on his neck. There was a lack of DNA evidence at the scene. But what struck police was that this was virtually the exact same location where the body of Oliver LeBanks had been recovered. Less than a year earlier, if Oliver and Mitchell had been killed by the same person, there was every indication that this was the case. Was the dump site on this occasion a taunt to law enforcement? A coincidence? Or just stupidity? A police sketch artist took a description from people who had been in the area on the day Mitchell was last seen. Witnesses described seeing an overweight white man in his mid-30s who was partially bald. By November 1999, the sketch was in wide circulation in the local media. It was also in November 1999 that 35-year-old Ronald Dominique quit his maintenance job and drove his trailer to Huma where he parked it in his sister's yard on Bayou Blue Road. She didn't mind and was happy to help out as she had done so many times in the past. She knew her brother's poor health affected his ability to work full-time, so she even offered for Ronald to connect his trailer to her household water and electricity supply. Given he had the space, Ronald bought another trailer and acquired a black pickup truck to get around in. He soon found a menial job at Caro Produce in Huma, where his co-workers found him quiet and polite. eve 1999 was a time of celebration reflection and anticipation for many for 23 year old michael vincent the dawn of the new millennium presented an opportunity for a fresh start michael was originally from lafayette parish but had since relocated to huma he had a criminal record for aggravated battery and drug offenses and was reported by those who knew him to occasionally engage in sex work to get by but his fireworks exploded across the nation that night, and revelers burst into happy renditions of all Lang Syne. Michael wasn't spending the night the way he thought he would. On New Year's Day, a passing motorist found his fully clothed body, hanging over a barbed-wired fence, in Fouche Parish. Michael had abrasions on his chest and torso, and ligature marks on his wrist. But there was no DNA at the scene, and no clue as to who was responsible. The person killing young men hadn't taken a break over the holidays, instead using it as an opportunity to snuff out the lives of those who were vulnerable. The police didn't know it yet, but their wanted man was about to go underground 4. A New Millennium By the year 2000, Ronald Dominique had moved back to the trailer park on Bryan Street. He'd managed to stay out of trouble with the law since 1996, but on May 19th he received a summons to appear in court on charges of disturbing the peace following a loud and confrontational verbal altercation with a stranger on the street in town. But since it was a misdemeanor charge, Ronald pled guilty, paid a fine to avoid appearing in court. In 2001, 37-year-old Ronald started working as a pizza delivery driver, and in his spare time, joined the local chapter of the Lions Club, which is an international service club whose members engage in volunteer and community work. In his capacity as a Lions volunteer, Ronald was the caller at the local bingo hall, where both he and the older people in the community enjoyed the social interaction at their local games. Ronald's brother-in-law worked at the Dixie's shipyard in Huma. It was around this time that he gave Ronald permission to park his trailer at the work site. Ronald would go on to move back and forth between this location and his sister's property. Like many locals and tourists, Ronald took himself along to the Huma Mardi Gras parade on February 10, 2002. But similar to two years previously, he soon found himself engaged in a public clash with a stranger. Ronald confronted a woman near West Park Avenue who accidentally bumped a baby stroller in a parking lot with her car. The woman apologized, but Ronald kept screaming at the woman and eventually slapped her across the face. Ronald was arrested, but instead of standing trial on an assault charge, he entered a parish offender's work release program. After complying with the conditions of the program, Ronald was released in October 2002. Not much is known about 19-year-old Kenneth Randolph Jr. Born in Terrebonne Parish, he lived in Charter's Court in Huma. Kenneth's criminal history included multiple charges of carnal knowledge of a juvenile, as well as property damage offenses. Kenneth was last seen on October 6, 2002, the same day his body was discovered in an isolated area of Lafouche Parish, on the side of a dirt road near Louisiana Highway 307 in Raceland. Kenneth was lying face down in a sugarcane field. He was naked apart from his white socks, had abrasions and ligature marks on his wrists, had been raped, and his neck showed indications that he had been choked to death. Police had to determine whether this most recent murder was the work of the same person who appeared responsible for several deaths that seemed to have culminated with the murder of Michael Vincent on New Year's Eve in 1999. If so, the killer had been inactive for over 18 months, and they need to find out why. Given the amount of time that had passed, if it wasn't the same person, police grappled with the possibility that they were now looking for two killers, and only a week later, there was another body. 26-year-old Anoka Jones was exceptionally close to his large family of three brothers, two sisters, two daughters, and two stepsons. Anoka lived with his girlfriend and her children in an apartment in Fremont Street in Huma. Like others in his local community, he had a criminal record for misdemeanors, drug dealing, battery, and petty theft charges. Anoka was at home on October 11, 2003, when his girlfriend arrived home with some groceries. He told her he loved her and said goodbye, saying he was going out to buy cigarettes and left on his bicycle. That evening, Anoka called the house of his friend Leon Lorette, who lived in a trailer park close to Anoka's apartment building. Anoka helped Leon move a large speaker and then asked to use Leon's phone, as he had done so in the past. Reports say that Anoka headed out to get beer around 9pm, getting into a white car that pulled up at Leon's house at around that time. The next day came, and Anoka hadn't come home. His girlfriend wasn't too worried when he didn't return home that evening before, as Anoka often stayed out, and she was used to it. He always found his way back home eventually. But on October 13th, a highway patrolman came across the body of an African-American man under the Highway 90 overpass in the town of Boute. The body was laying face down in the dirt. And tracks on the ground nearby indicated the body had been dragged to where it lay. The man was dressed in a t-shirt, but his shorts had been pulled down. In addition to blood around his mouth and abrasions on his back and neck, the man had been raped and strangled. Police initially had difficulty identifying the man, but when one of Anoka's brothers came forward on October 14th to report a missing, the grim realization set in for his family. Police began tracing Anoka's last steps, and pursued the possibility that he could have been targeted by someone over an unpaid drug debt. Anoka previously sold drugs for two local dealers and owed them money. These men were eventually eliminated, but the theory that Anoka was killed over a drug-related matter persisted. One of Anoka's friends told police that on the night of October 11th, two days before Anoka disappeared, he and Anoka were standing at an intersection in Huma when a truck containing two men stopped near them. The men got out of the truck and started yelling at Anoka, who ran in the opposite direction. One of the men was soon identified as a local drug dealer, known as Big Julius. Police impounded and searched the truck. There was no evidence that either Big Julius or his accomplice had committed or had any knowledge of Anoka's murder. The fact that Anoka had been raped also minimized the possibility for police that his death was drug-related. Police questioned Anoka's good friend Leon Lorette at length. Given he was one of the last people to see Anoka alive, the night he went missing. Leon was arrested for Anoka's murder, but the charges were soon dropped, and police were back to square one. To make matters more complicated for law enforcement, it was during this investigation that there were two other active serial killers in Louisiana. This presented a range of issues in terms of limited police resources but also meant that the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab had a backlog of forensic evidence to be analyzed. In the event that any DNA could be recovered from crime scenes, in some cases, it could take up to 10 months to get back the results. And outsourcing the testing for samples became the only way to hasten the process. One of the three serial killers active in Louisiana was finally apprehended by the State Police on May 27, 2003, 34-year-old Derek Todd Lee was charged with murdering seven women in the Baton Rouge and Lafayette areas between 1992 and 2003. While this was a relief to the public, it was a cold comfort to the police in Terrebonne, Lafourche, and Jefferson Parishes. Their killer was preying on fit African-American men of a slender build. Several of the victims had a criminal record, and some also had a history of heavy drug use. Daytrell Woods was only 18 years old, but he hadn't had it easy. Growing up in Huma, he was said to struggle with mental health issues, and at times had been estranged from some members of his family. In addition to having a criminal record for petty theft, he'd also done time in juvenile correctional facilities. The Huma Courier newspaper reported that Daytrell was last seen by his mother on May 24, 2003, when he left their house on Buron Street in Huma, in a friend's car to go visit his girlfriend. When he failed to return home, his family reported him missing to police, but he hoped and trusted he'd return soon as he usually did. But it wasn't to be. Two days later, on May 26th, two men riding dirt bikes on the edge of a sugarcane field behind a church off Woodland Ranch Road came upon the body of a young African American man. When police arrived to cordon off the scene, they saw that a bicycle lay on the ground next to the man, who was wearing shorts and socks but was missing his shirt and shoes. Due to the advanced state of decomposition, the body couldn't be immediately identified. When the body was confirmed of that of Daytrell Woods, his shocked and confused relatives couldn't understand how he could have met such a violent end. His family told the Huma Courier newspaper that Daytrell didn't have his bicycle with him when he left for his aunt's house, and that even if he had, he wouldn't have ridden to that particular church, which was almost six miles away. Day trial's autopsy failed to reveal anything specific, and given there was no signs of trauma to his heavily decomposed remains, the cause of death was recorded and unknown. Meanwhile, 40-year-old Ronald Dominique had been moving from job to job. Throughout 2003, he continued to work for Caro Produce and delivered pizza at night. After losing his day job the following January... He had a short stint with a Huma Maintenance Company before securing a position as a meter reader, a job he still held in April 2004 when Louisiana law enforcement had another breakthrough in a spate of serial murders that had been weighing on the minds of police and community alike. On April 29th, police arrested 41-year-old Sean Vincent Gillis for the kidnap, rape, and murder of eight women in the Baton Rouge area. Again... This provided a degree of relief to both police and the community, knowing that a predator of women was off the streets. But deep down, police knew that the person stalking young men from poor communities throughout several parishes in the south of the state was still on the loose. Unfortunately, like many others in this story, not much is known about Larry Matthews. 46-year-old Larry lived around the Thibodeau area and was said to be a drifter. Larry was known to law enforcement as a drug user and dealer and was last seen by his brother on St. Charles Street a few days before Tropical Storm Matthew struck south-central Louisiana on October 10th. Up to 15 inches of heavy rain had hit parts of the state, with some homes in Terrebonne and Lafourche parishes experiencing flooding from the storm surge. Larry didn't make it home after the storm, and his body was found in the days following, near a pond by a man passing through Delamont. Larry's body was dressed in a shirt and sweatpants, but like previous victims, he was missing his shoes. Larry's autopsy found he sustained blunt force trauma to his right shoulder, and his back and buttock showed evidence of soft tissue and intramuscular hemorrhaging. It was initially thought that Larry had met with misadventure during the storm, the autopsy originally concluded that he had died an accidental death resulting from drug overdose. But this was despite physical evidence in the form of abrasions to his throat and buttocks, and evidence that he had been raped. As far as police can ascertain, all of the victims so far had been African American, indicating that the killer may have been as well. This came from the behavioral profiling concept that serial predators rarely offend outside their own race. But as police were about to discover... Their killer didn't discriminate along racial lines. Twenty-one-year-old Michael Barnett was born in Mississippi, but later adopted. He'd also spent some of his childhood in the Baptist Children's Village in Jackson, as explained by author Fred Rosen in his book *The Bayou Strangler*. He was last seen at 10:45 p.m. one night in early October 2004, riding his bike down Ruth Street in Huma, where he lived. He told a friend he was going to meet a girl at the fire station and was reported by the Huma Courier newspaper to be wearing a black button-down long-sleeved shirt, black pants, and steel-capped boots. But when Michael hadn't been seen for several days afterwards, his concerned friends reported him as missing to local police. No one could say what happened to Michael following his rendezvous at the fire station, nor could they identify the girl in question he said he was going to meet a grisly discovery three weeks following Michael's disappearance would partially answer the question of what had happened to him the last night he was seen alive. On October 25th, the part owner of a mini-storage facility near a Terrebonne Parish airbase was investigating reports of a bad smell when they came upon the body of what was assumed to be an African-American man lying on his back inside an unlocked and vacant storage unit. When police attended, they soon realized the unrecognizable remains were not those of an African-American male, but a naked, Caucasian man who was so bloated from the southern heat and humidity that his skin had darkened significantly. Police could see the man had been tied with some type of ligature and also noticed the man had a tattoo of a dragon. The tattoo and dental records were used to identify the body of that of Michael Barnett. Something else that police noticed was that from their position at the mini-storage, the site where the body of day, Charles Woods was recovered 18 months previously in May 2003 was only less than a mile away. Inquiries with the staff at the fire station and everyone who rented a storage unit in the facility unfortunately failed to yield anything of value. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Law enforcement still had no solid leads following Michael's murder. Police went back to review their files for as many clues as possible to link their victims. All the victims had been bound, but there was no sign of trauma or defensive wounds. This led police to theorize that the victims were either drugged prior to their deaths, or that two people were responsible. Given the victims had otherwise all been fit and healthy, no murder weapons had been found with any of the bodies, which had clearly been dumped away from the site where the victims were killed. There were no fingerprints, shoes, or tire impressions at any of the scenes. All the victims had been strangled, some with ligature and some by manual means, and minimal physical evidence was left behind, if at all. Police noted that the killer had used the Louisiana climate to his advantage. The remote locations where some of the bodies were left, exposed to the elements, often in the warm bayou waters, meant that the rate of decomposition was accelerated. Even in the fall, Temperatures could still get as high as 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. None of the victims owned cars, preferring to get around on foot or bicycles. Unfortunately, even though all of the victims had been raped, rape kits had not been taken for any of the victims, up to and including Oliver LeBanks. Police had their work cut out for them to catch someone who had killed 14 men and didn't appear to be stopping anytime soon. Listener you recall earlier in this episode that soon after the body of Anoka Jones was found in October of 2002, his good friend Leon Lorette was charged with his murder, only for these charges to later be dropped and Leon cleared of any allegations of wrongdoing. 22-year-old Leon, also known to his friends and family as T-Paul, was born in Huma and had two stepsisters and one stepbrother. Leon lived with his mother in her three-bedroom trailer on State Street in Huma and was known by those around him as an easygoing, nice guy. Leon had his share of trouble in his younger years. He was in and out of work, had done some time in Terrebonne Parish Jail, and smoked pot occasionally. He was close to his cousins, and they enjoyed spending time with him hanging out and socializing in downtown Huma. The Huma courier reported that it wasn't particularly unusual for Leon to disappear for several days at a time, just to do his own thing, and he always made his way home eventually. On February 15, 2005, Leon's mother loaned him $5 to buy cigarettes and beer on the way to Laverne's bar. Leon's mother said that Leon had plans that night to travel to Coto, a 90-minute drive away, but didn't arrive. The last Leon's family heard from him was a phone call on the evening of February sixteenth, when he told them he didn't know where he was and that he was full of beer and drugs. No one heard from Leon again. His body was found four days later on February 20th, 100 feet from a daycare center, under a bush at the edge of a former World War II airport off Moffitt Road in Terrebonne Parish, by three men riding dirt bikes. Leon was wearing jeans and socks, but no shirt or shoes. Leon had been heavily intoxicated when he died, had abrasions around his neck and wrists, and had been asphyxiated. Laverne's Bar which is where Leon was headed on February 15th, is located near the Sugar Bowl Motel, an establishment known by local law enforcement to be commonly frequented by sex workers, drug dealers, and users. A witness told police that about a week prior, they saw a man fitting Leon's description in the motel car park. They also saw him talking to a white man driving a white Chevrolet Suburban pickup. At one stage... The man got out of the truck and the witness could see he had a mustache and walked with a limp. No more information was forthcoming, but it was a start. 31-year-old August Watkins, known by his family by his middle name of Terrell, had been living on Peters Street in Huma. His family knew him as a conversationalist and someone who enjoyed helping others. He often asked his aunt's neighbors if he could cut their grass and hedges to supplement the income he drew from his veterans' benefits and social security. But August hadn't been without his share of run-ins with the law, with the Times newspaper reporting that he avoided serving time for previous charges of aggravated battery with a dangerous weapon. August's family had their share of heartbreak when the body of his cousin, Daytrell Woods, was found in May 2003. The person responsible was still believed to be at large. And the police didn't seem to have any leads by april 2005 august had been living with his girlfriend and her children but his patience with the kids was running thin rather than stay and risk a confrontation august decided to find temporary accommodation to give himself some space but when his friends and family tried to track him down at his new place of residence no one seemed to be able to locate him his girlfriends told police that when august left her house He'd been picked up by an overweight white man and a black woman driving a white truck. Police managed to track the couple down, they were eliminated as suspects in August's disappearance. A cousin of August later told police that on April 8th, he saw August walking through the pedestrianized Huma Tunnel from one side of town to the other, carrying duffel and trash bags containing his belongings over his shoulder, where it was reported that he had been sleeping rough. Unfortunately, By the time August was found on April 9, 2005, he'd been murdered. His body was found by a passing motorist, dumped in a ditch next to a canal off Highway 90 in Raceland. He was face down and fully clothed. Despite indications that August had been bound and strangled, the cause of death couldn't be determined at the autopsy. Listener, the audio you heard at the start of this episode was the voice of August's older brother, Landry, This audio is an excerpt from the 2014 documentary Bayou Blue by directors Alex Lambert and David McMahon, who spoke at length with investigators and relatives of other victims in the case who reflected on life without their loved ones. Finally, in April 2005, a multi-jurisdictional task force of eight officers was established to investigate the rising body count. The task force consisted of South Louisiana Sheriff's Offices from Jefferson St. Charles, Lafourche, and Terrebonne Parishes, Louisiana State Police, and the FBI. Even at this stage, not everyone in law enforcement was on board with the idea that another serial killer was in the area. Task Force detectives who were convinced that young men were being murdered by the same person pointed to the similarities between each case. Initially, Any male murder victims who turned up in the area who do not show evidence of gunshot or stab wounds or other trauma were included in the task force investigation until they could be excluded. Looking closely at each file, investigators identified that with some exceptions, the majority of the victims led what law enforcement came to refer to in the media as a high-risk lifestyle, including a history of drug use and a criminal record. Many of the victims were unemployed or frequently moved from low-paying job to low-paying job, and had no qualifications. Most of the victims had been raped. They had all been asphyxiated or strangled, and many of them had been found without their shoes. No murder weapons had been found near any of the bodies. For the officers on the task force who believed a serial killer was at work, their theory was gaining strength. Then on the day the first task force meeting was wrapping up in Baton Rouge in late April, Officers got word of another body that had been found in a similar circumstance. Like Michael Barnett, who was found six months earlier, this victim was Caucasian. 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham was born in Huma to a large family of three brothers, one stepbrother and four sisters. Kurt lived in Thibodeau, with he and his siblings having been in and out of foster care throughout their lives around the Huma, Raceland, and Thibodeau areas. And as far east as the state of Mississippi. As a teenager, Kurt was said to have lived through some rough times, sleeping outside wherever he could find shelter. But he was known by his friends as a free spirited, gentle person who loved to live in the moment, make others laugh with his irreverent sense of humor, and who made friends easily. He was also a talented artist and enjoyed getting outside to indulge in his passion for skateboarding. Like other teens he knew, Kurt struggled to manage his heavy marijuana use, and this proved an ongoing challenge. The breakup of his first serious relationship when he was around 21 years old devastated Kurt, and to his friends, his heartbreak was obvious. As a teen, Kurt had brushes with the law for a range of minor public order offenses, such as public drunkenness, disturbing the peace, and contempt of court. As an adult, Kurt at one stage worked as a welder's helper, but most of the time, he didn't have a steady job. The last time anyone saw Kurt was on April 8, 2005, and when no one had seen him for a few days, nobody necessarily panicked. It wasn't out of character for Kurt to go off the grid for a while be uncontactable, only to resurface several days later. But on April 28th, his body was found laying face down in a drainage canal behind a field 50 feet from Highway 307, near Kramer. Kurt was wearing only his denim shorts. And had been sexually assaulted, bound, and strangled. Regrettably, there was no DNA at the scene. Everyone who knew Kurt was in shock. Like the family and friends of the previous victims, they couldn't fathom that somebody so gentle and harmless could have fallen victim to a person capable of doing something so vicious. As a final fitting tribute at Kurt's funeral service, his loved one sat his ashes atop his skateboard. As they said goodbye to their friend, son, and brother. Par 5. The Bayou Bodies Something that affected public perception, and perhaps both public and media interest in the ongoing case was the police decision to actively make inquiries with the local gay communities where victims had last been seen and where their bodies had been found. This resulted in word spreading around that most, if not all, of the victims were gay, and if they weren't, that they were all somehow engaged in sex work in the gay community. Police, of course, were obligated to pursue all leads, regardless of whether the last reported sighting of a victim was in a gay bar at 3 a.m. or at a convenience store in broad daylight. In any investigation, a victim's sexuality in and of itself should be irrelevant on the surface of it. But in this case, it posed two problems. The first was that the friends and families of heterosexual victims were angry simply at the circulation of incorrect information. This was about their loved ones, and no one seemed to want to bother correcting it. The second, and more systematically troubling issue, was that despite the thriving gay scene in a large city like New Orleans... Conservative attitudes about sexuality in small-town Louisiana were, and still are, difficult to confront. The shame and embarrassment that some families were dealing with was only heightened by an anxiety, brought on by the thought of the neighborhood grapevine running hot with the speculation that the victims met a brutal end because they were being paid for sex. At any rate, no information of any substantive value at this stage was gleaned from police inquiries within the local gay communities. And disappointingly, it was reported that the gay community didn't appear overly invested in assisting the police in any way. The victims were straight men who were engaging in sex work with male clients. They weren't really considered part of the gay community, and regarded more as fringe dwellers in the social scene who only hung out at bars and clubs to meet clients. It didn't help when in the middle of the investigation, it was reported that whoever was responsible for the murders was simply doing society a favor. ...by, quote, "...taking out the trash." In terms of motive, the task force had to explore every possibility, given that most victims had a criminal record involving at least one drug offense. And the rate at which young men's bodies were turning up led investigators to consider whether the murders were hits put out by local drug dealers. The task force also couldn't discount the possibility that the killer personally knew his victims, and was selecting them based on social connections... The Humacuria newspaper noted that Anoka Jones, Leon Lorette, and Michael Barnett all lived in the same neighborhood. We know that Anoka and Leon were friends. The family connection between Daytra Woods and August Watkins couldn't be ignored either. Investigators just had to find the common thread to lead them to a solid suspect. Whatever the connection was, the task force could see that the victim pool was meant from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds often relied on rides from strangers to get around due to a lack of transportation. Killer knew that by targeting men who didn't have a stable home life or job, and were after a quick buck due to unemployment or to fund a drug habit, he would avoid becoming the subject of an investigation for far longer than someone who targeted more high-profile victims from the perspective of media attention. In other words, he was preying on men who many people thought wouldn't be missed, 28-year-old Alonzo Hogan grew up in a family of two sisters and two brothers in Raceland. He was a proud father to a daughter himself. Alonzo didn't have a fixed address and was understood to have a mild developmental disability. He was close to his family and in the summer of 2005, he was looking forward to soon becoming a father for the second time. Alonzo loved nothing better than getting outdoors on his BMX bicycle and going fishing He took great pride in his bicycle, which he was washing on July 1st, 2005 at his sister's house in preparation for a day trip to go fishing with his sister's ex-husband. Wanting to kill some time before his brother-in-law arrived to pick him up for their trip, Alonzo headed off on his bike toward Huma, but didn't tell his sister specifically where he was going. Alonzo didn't return home to meet his brother-in-law but was last sighted at the Kmart in Monarch Drive, in Huma, around 9 p.m. that evening. The following day, the fully clothed body of the father-to-be was found in a ditch off the side of the road, near Rivet Lane and Bayou Gosh Road in St. Charles Parish. Marks on Alonzo's wrists indicated he'd been restrained, along with being sexually assaulted and strangled. There was no DNA to be found. 17-year-old Wayne Smith was the oldest son and third eldest of seven children. He was a devoted older brother, and in his senior year in high school, Wayne lived at home with his family and had no history of involvement with drugs, and was looking forward to studying welding once he graduated high school. Wayne's aunt told Huma Courier newspaper that Wayne's ultimate dream once he'd started working was to buy his mother a new house. In his spare time, Wayne enjoyed listening to music Riding his bike, spending time with his girlfriend who he'd been dating for several years, and playing Grand Theft Auto on his PlayStation. He was just a typical teen. Wayne was last seen leaving his house on Roselawn Avenue on August 13, 2005. He'd been out earlier in the day riding his bike and later came home to drop his bike off, only to go straight out again. Wayne wasn't the kind of kid to get into trouble or not come home. So when he failed to return, his family were worried. Two of his cousins had been murdered in recent years, Daytrail Woods and August Watkins, and his family desperately hoped that nothing tragic could have happened to Wayne. On August 16, 2005, a group of surveyors working near the bank of a bayou in Cedar Grove Road, near Grand Caillou Middle School, found a fully clothed but badly decomposed body, The effects of the heat and humidity of the Louisiana summer on the body meant that dental records were required to assist with identification. Like Michael Barnett, the body also had a distinctive tattoo that police were able to show to Wayne's family, who by now had reported him missing. Wayne's mother confirmed that the tattoo was the same one her son had and broke the news to Wayne's grandmother, who had now lost her third grandson. The family wasn't convinced that Wayne, August, or Detrell had fallen victim to a serial killer, and worked off the theory that a long running dispute between neighborhood groups was the reason their four family members had been killed. But in the end, this theory didn't go anywhere. Not only were the families of the 20 men who had been killed over an eight year period without their loved ones, they were still without answers. Listener, the story isn't over. But for today, that about wraps things up for part one. Make sure to be listening for the release of part two to find out how things unfolded. How the task force ultimately got their man. Thank you for listening and keep the fire burning.
1: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app.